Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, A Desert Experience, with a message titled, Honor God with Your Life. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verses 7 to 11, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. In Exodus 33, 15 to 16, we hear Moses speaking with God. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? See, Moses simply can't conceive of life without the presence of God. And isn't that a fascinating thought? There are those of us who are the opposite. We can't conceive of life in the presence of God. See, for some of us, life seems, well, ordinary. Life's about a job, about family, about friends, about money, vacations, careers, birthdays, getting old, then dying. But for some, life is sacred because all of life is lived in the presence of God. Now, in Exodus 20, Israel is in the revealed presence of God. They are at the foot of Mount Sinai. They hear the voice of God. God gives them the Ten Commandments. We've already looked at the first two. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make an idol or any physical representation of God. So today we move to the next two, which also are about Israel's relationship to God. And here I'm reading the third command taken from Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Third command is simple. The Hebrew word for vain, the word shove, it means vanity, and it can also mean falsehood. Psalm 24, 3 and 4 uses the word. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to do what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So that word false was translated in the old King James Version as vanity. And interestingly enough, what you have in this verse is a bit of Hebrew parallelism. The next line is to swear deceitfully explains falsehood or vanity. In other words, to take the name of the Lord in vain is to use the name of the Lord falsely or to swear by it falsely or to speak in a trivial manner or to use it when lying or to use it when cursing or to use it in any way that was not intended for its use. How do we apply that command? Very simply. Commit that you will not introduce the name of God into your speech except to pray or to express praise or to bring glory to that name. The name of the Lord or God or Yahweh or any other name that God has claimed for himself and by which he has revealed himself, that name was introduced into our language in only three ways of expression. It was used to invoke the name when we pray, We are to invoke the name as we worship, and we are to speak of that name to others, and in so doing, express the greatness of that name. Nothing else. All other uses of the name is vain, it's false, it's deceitful. That's what the command says, and it's very simple. And it's because it was possible to let something slip out of our mouths that is vain or false, and because the command promises that guilt will come upon us if we do that, Well, the ancient Hebrews refused to mention the name Yahweh at all. So when they wrote the name, they bathed themselves first, lest they be unclean. 
And when they read the name, they wouldn't say Yahweh because their lips were too unclean for that. They would rather say Adonai, which means Lord. But they would never allow themselves to utter the name lest they desecrate their lips. And this way they thought they'd be sure not to break the third command. But there's a huge but here. All the commands are in fact internal. Let's get back to Moses and his prayer to God. Remember, it's because of Israel's idolatry that God has threatened to remove his presence, and Moses can't imagine that. You know, in that way, Moses is like so many today who can't imagine a world that's not infused with the presence of God. Let me give you an example. Imagine you had a hockey puck at home, or a baseball, or a football that's signed by your sports hero. It's special because your sports hero perhaps played with that puck, or has touched that puck, and then he signed that puck. And did you know that many people feel that way about this world? They see a plant touched, created by God. Every tree, every flower, every rock, every lake, every ocean, every mountain, every insect, every animal, every person is created by God and displays the greatness of the Creator. The whole universe displays His glory. If they study science in school, they know they're on sacred ground. But there is more. Not only is God the creator, but he's also the sovereign God who oversees everything in the universe. In that sense, no event is accidental. Every encounter is a divine encounter. Every conversation, every inconvenience, every joy, every sorrow, every small and great event is arranged by God who sustains and governs our lives. There's a profound mystery and wonder in that. But there's more. God speaks. God speaks finally and ultimately in the words of the Bible. But sometimes the words of the Bible are affirmed by the inner impressions that we get in our own hearts when we're guided by the Word. He does speak through other people, and He does speak into our hearts, sometimes through our conscience or sometimes by the quickening of the Holy Spirit. Let me read a quote written by the late Arthur Pink. He said, Whensoever we make mention of Him, before whom the seraphim veil their faces, we ought seriously and solemnly to ponder his infinite majesty and glory and bow our hearts in deepest prostration before that name. Then a few sentences later, in the same article, Pink goes on to say, that name is not to be sported with and tossed to and fro upon every light tongue. O my reader, form the habit of solemnly considering whose name it is you are about to utter that it is the name of him who is present with thee, hearing thee pronounce it, who is jealous of his honor and who will dreadfully avenge himself upon those who have slighted him. So let's get back to the third command, Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let's get as practical as we can. How may we use the name and in what way do we take the name in vain? Before I set out a number of helpful principles, however, let's read one incident from Leviticus 24, verses 10 to 16, and it illustrates for us how seriously God takes this command. Here's what the passage says. Now, an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel, and the Israelite's woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp, and the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemoth, the daughter of Divri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. And so from our perspective, we might say that whatever else the third command says, it tells us that we must never use the name as a curse. It's a great sin against God. It fits on God's top 10 list of the things that he hates. It is lawlessness, is considered by God's international rule of law, a crime against holiness itself. (laughs) I'll now make this plain. If you've made a habit of using God's name when you want to damn someone or something, know that your soul is in great danger. Come to Christ. You confess your great sin. You plead with him for mercy. God's name is never to be used in cursing. But God's name is never also to be used in emphasis. I know there's some who have gotten quite accustomed to using God's name as an expression, saying things like, oh my God. You know, I'm thankful for the precious blood of the Lord Jesus, that he suffered death for you and I so that we would not be stoned. But we need a new commitment. The commitment is that we will never use either God or Lord or anything as an expression. The sacred name is not a common name. Remember Arthur Pink, the seraphim cover their faces when they say the name. And those seraphim have never sinned. How much more then should you also? The sacred name is never to be used in humor. It's never to be used as an expression. It's never to be used casually. Indeed, it is never to be used as a way of emphasizing any point at all or a way of declaring that you're really telling the truth. Any such practice is a serious sin against holiness. It is to excite the anger of the one who is to be regarded as holy. Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John, spiritual encouragement of Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca, call us at 1-800-663-2425, and please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants. We come now to the fourth command, Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
The word Sabbath, in Hebrew Shabbat, means to stop or to cease. And so the Sabbath is the stopping day, the day in which all work ceases. The command begins with the word remember. And the idea that the ancient Israelites were to remember may be because Israel already had a great deal to remember already when they came before God at Mount Sinai. Go back to Exodus 16, and you're going to find that Israel, after having left Egypt, came to the desert area called the Wilderness of Sin. It was in that place where God gives them the miracle of manna every single day, miraculously, and this went on for 40 years, God rained bread from heaven and the people were to eat. So they got up in the morning, the ground would have been filled with manna, the people would have gathered as much as they needed. But the manna was good for only one day. If you kept it for more than a day, it would breed worms and it would stink. However, something changed in the consistency of the bread every single Friday. On Friday, they were to gather twice as much as they normally would so that on the next day, Saturday or the Sabbath, they would stop working, stop gathering food. This was to teach Israel never to work on Saturday. But in the fourth command, we're told why. The day is holy. That is, we're not to think of this day as any other day. Rather, it's distinct and different from all the other days. This is a day set aside by God. Now then, the matter is explained. Verse 9 says, Six days shall you labor and do all your work. Now, it's not so much as a command, but a prohibition. You're not allowed to work beyond the six. After six, work comes to an end. Rest is required. Now to verse 10. The seventh day, says the text, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. I need to stop here and observe something. When you think of it, it's very interesting. The Ten Commandments are arranged in two halves. The first four command us to teach us how to love God. The last six teach us how to love our neighbors. But notice verse 10, the fourth command. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or even the sojourner or the foreigner who is within your gates. Sabbath provides rest for everyone, including servants. Sabbath is an act of love of the sovereign God for his people. Now to verse 11. Here we find two reasons for the Sabbath. First, the Sabbath is arranged as it is, for God made the world in six days and rested on the seventh, and therefore Sabbath is learning to order our lives after God. Sabbath conforms our lives to the life of God. It allows us to think about the relationship between work and rest from God's perspective. Life is not about endlessly working, nor is it about a life of leisure. There is to be a balance between work and leisure. The fourth command teaches us that we are to learn that balance from God himself. Not telling you any secrets when I tell you that the question of Sabbath is a very controversial question today among Christians. There are those, for instance, in the Seventh-day Adventist camp who argue that the Saturday law is still in effect today. But the real question is, what did the early church do with the fourth commandment? Well, according to Acts 20, verse 7, we find that a change has taken place in the church. The text says, on the first day of the week, when they were gathered together to break bread. So here, instead of worshiping on the seventh day, the church worships on the first day. The same pattern is found in Revelation 1.10, also in 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2. So why is the first day of the week our Sabbath today? And the answer is simple. 
That is, when the early church, inspired by Scripture, worshipped. We might want to listen to Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the practice of the early church, as it's described in the New Testament, it's clear. The principle of Sabbath is maintained. Rest and worship is maintained. But it's now taken from its uniquely Jewish context. The early church still had Ten Commandments, but they didn't practice the fourth command in the uniquely Jewish way. Rather, they transformed the Sabbath into the practice of the Lord's day. And that explains what Paul meant when he later said in Romans 14, verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. See, that's not a contrast between the person who believes in keeping the fourth command as opposed to the person who doesn't. No, no, that's not it. This is a contrast between the person who understands the significance of only one day and the person who understands the significance of all days. The person who understands the significance of all days knows what to do on the Lord's day. Now, we find that as a pattern in the early church. The first day of the week was called the Lord's day. This day was reserved for two things, for worship and for rest to cease from labors. And as we might know, the issue of what constitutes work and what doesn't, well, that consumed the Jewish mind. We remember that the Pharisees made rules about, you know, how far you could walk on the Sabbath and about the actual definition of the word. Indeed, they condemned Jesus for healing the sick on the Sabbath. And what's also fascinating is that some of us remember Christian rules around the Sabbath, and we've reacted badly to those rules. So let me talk frankly. There are principles that present-day believers should place on their lives so that we could keep the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, and honor God. How do we do that? Let me suggest four principles. Number one, make sure that a weekly time of worship is a priority. Don't miss worship. Don't you dare make, you know, kids' baseball practice or soccer practice make you miss worship. And this will take some work for some of you. But let me give you an example. You know, when our son was young, we had enrolled him in hockey and I made an appointment to see the coach. He was a non-Christian man, and I told him we were a Christian family, that Sunday was sacred for us. I then asked him if he would allow our son to miss Sunday practice. Our coach's response, it amazed me. He said, I respect your religion, of course. It was as simple as that. Later on, we had a Christian coach, and he refused to respect our commitment to the fourth command. That was amazing to me. I say this because I think the fourth command will demand that we seek God's favor and the favor of others that express our concern that we be allowed to worship on this day. Second principle, make sure that a weekly time of worship and rest lasts for a full day. If at all possible, set aside a 24-hour period of time. Don't deviate from it. There'll be enough time to work on the other six days. And in many ways, that becomes a test for your faith. Believe that you're honoring God by putting 24 hours aside in which you will rest. The third principle, keep all acts of work to acts of charity or matters of necessity. I have a son-in-law who's a firefighter. He doesn't violate the fourth command when he works on the Lord's day. Neither did I all those years when I served as a pastor. Keep work to matters of absolute necessity. Fourth and finally, exercise freedom on this day. Some believers 
will not shop on this day. This, I think, I think it's wise. I think it honors God. Others keep from business discussions on this day. Many decide they're not going to mow their lawn on Sunday. Many decide they won't do housework on this day. It's not legalism. It's respect for holiness. Some decide to make this a day for fellowship with believers. Others choose to use this day to be alone. But this day must be a day of rest, of rest and of worship. And it must be a day that's lived differently than the way in which we live all the other days of the week. This day, that is the Lord's day, is different from all other days. And so we've talked about commandments three and four. Never misuse the sacred name. Regard it as holy. Put your hand to your mouth and speak of the sacred name in a way that befits honor. Secondly, keep one day so that you would use that day to showcase that you do honor and glorify your maker. You rest from your labors and you worship him following the pattern that he laid down before you in his creation. Honor God in these ways and we will honor him truly. Fail to honor him in these ways and we will find this failure begins to leak out into all manner of other patterns of living we'll find ourselves getting sloppy about how we live rather than to live with a sense of the holiness of God. All life, after all, is lived in His presence. Thanks so much for your message today, John. Let me ask you, and I think this is a debatable question for a lot of people, but I think there's a serious answer here. How do we keep the Sabbath holy? You know, the rules have changed over the years. So is it any less important? Now, let's start with that last question, Ben. Is it any less important? And uh, this is going to be shocking to some people because they read Jesus and assume that he did away with the command set aside one day for worship and rest. That command has not been set aside. In fact, the history of the Christian church proves to us that this was taken very seriously. Now, we happen to live in a day when people set it aside easily. And so I think we need to rethink whether or not we believe in all Ten Commandments. And in fact, we do. So let me talk about how we celebrate Sabbath. There are only two commands that are there. One, worship, and the other, rest. That is, cease from all of your labors. All the things that normally drive you, you just stop doing, and you set aside this day, and you let the land lie fellow rest. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Many of us are well familiar with the words of Deuteronomy 31.6. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. But sometimes, our hardships, distress, or tribulations can make God feel far. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada is offering a free booklet called Restored, A Story of Lives Made Full. It points to the book of Ruth and relates to how God moved one family from hunger to abundance, from bitterness to celebration. This booklet unravels the powerful and timeless lessons found in the story of Ruth that we can all learn from today. If your heart is in need of a refresh with the sustaining truths of God's faithfulness, then be sure to request your free copy today. Just call us at 
or visit backtothebible.ca.